Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I'm here in the isolation ward of the fourth sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, because I am still struggling with bubonic plague or whatever it is that I've got. Uh, and in healthier parts of the ministry, we have Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations, a columnist for the Washington Post and author of The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam, which is a wonderful new book. Uh, and Rosa Brooks, who is at Georgetown, as we know, and, and and part of our team here, and written many wonderful books, and probably has one due that she's struggling with or hasn't even started yet, probably. Right, Rosa? Correct. Correct. Don't tell so me. It's, Don't tell it's me always a pleasure to discuss somebody's book who's finished, <laughs> actually finished their book. I know. It, doesn't res- make, it, does, it does induce uh, panic, horror, and shame in the rest of us, though. Well, yes, but I mean, we don't have to have schadenfreude. We can be happy for Max. This is a New York Times bestseller. The book has gotten amazing reviews all around. It's a great story, a spy story, a war story, a political story um, about a very interesting, shady character that people, and and brilliant character people have made movies about and so forth. Um, And let me start, Max, by asking the question, why did you write this book now? You know, I think one of the things that people who don't write books don't think about is that when you go and you say, I'm going to go write a book, you then have to live with this person in this place for several years. And it has to make you want to get up in the morning and you have to want to be with them. And, you know, sometimes an idea seems like a good idea, but through three, four years later, it's a nightmare to have to deal with it. Why did you say, I want to spend several years with Edward Lansdale. Five years to be exact. Well, I had my reservations uh, in the beginning, and I actually wrote about Lansdale a little bit in my last book, Invisible Armies, which was a history of guerrilla warfare down through the ages. Uh, And then my editor and I, Bob Weil at Norton, were sitting around talking about what I should do for an encore, and he suggested turning Ed Lansdale into the subject of a full-blown book. And I was initially skeptical because I thought, well, I'd already been there, done that. Why do I want to write more about Ed Lansdale? But he had an intuition that there was more to say, and he was dead right, uh, because I was lucky enough in the course of my research to uncover a lot of new material, including uh, the hidden love letters that Lansdale wrote uh, to this Filipino woman named Pat Kelly, who was his longtime mistress and eventually his second wife. Uh, So I got access to those from Pat Kelly's granddaughter, and then Ed Lansdale's boys now in their 60s and 70s shared with me the letters that he wrote to their mother, Helen, often simultaneously. And so I'm the first person after Lansdale himself to have read both sets of letters to the wife and to the mistress. And I also benefited from the CIA's very slow 
uh, declassification policies because it's only in the last few years that they've declassified a lot of the documents involving Lansdale's work in the Philippines and Vietnam in the 1950s. And so I'm the first author who's managed to make use of those in a book. And so uh, for all those reasons, I think even though Lansdale has been written about a fair amount in the past, I have a fresh take of a, a, a new perspective and I have greater insight into his innermost thinking than than, than previous authors have had. And uh, what I found in the course of the last five years or so working on the book is uh, I didn't really grow tired of him because fundamentally at the end of the day, I thought he was a pretty nice, pretty well-intentioned guy. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean he got everything right. He made mistakes. Uh, he did some some things that were not so good. Uh, but fundamentally, I think he was he was basically a, a decent guy. And so it wasn't that hard for me to to spend five years of my life living with him. So basically what I take away from this, because I am who I am, is that there were all these salacious letters about the wife and the mistress, and that's what kept you going throughout this thing. <laughs> well, uh, there there was certainly a, a romantic story here that I did not anticipate when I started the book, uh, and it was actually I was actually quite moved by the romance between Ed Lansdale and Pat Kelly. I mean, it's, it's interesting with the letters, because certainly the letters that Ed Lansdale wrote to Pat Kelly when at the beginning of their relationship, which began in 1946, after he was stationed in the Philippines, those initial letters for a few years after that were certainly of the salacious, uh, heavy breathing variety, telling with with Ed telling Pat how much he loved her and you know that spot behind her knee and et cetera, et cetera. And so <laughs> I felt very voyeuristic. Uh, and in fact, in those early years, in some ways, the letters he was writing to his wife, Helen, uh, were more useful because they are much more matter of fact and actually uh, simply described his work environment uh, instead of talking about how much he loved uh, his wife. Now, of course, human nature being what it is, after the passage of a few years, I have to report that the letters to Pat Kelly also became much more matter of fact and, and much more descriptive of, of the work environment rather than simply, uh, you know, finding 300 different ways to say I love you in the course of a letter. So. Uh, but you know, this was just a very—it was very interesting for me to get this insight into this, into this hidden relationship that was so important to Lansdale, not only personally but also professionally, because Pat Kelly, as a as a Filipina, really served as his entry point into Filipino culture and as a as a cultural guide, and also introduced him to many of the book insurgents, the communist rebels that uh, he was trying to figure out how to defeat. So she was this this hidden other woman and and I was I'm very happy with this book to be able to restore her to the position of prominence that she rightly occupied in, in Ed Lansdale's life. Yeah, so I yeah, once again deep state radio nerds the, the the listening to our podcast you're getting a perspective on this that you might not have gotten in in all the other reviews that you've read but I want to ask Max one more question then I want to sort of open this up to you Rosa um because you know, when I read this and as, you know, I sort of look at the story, there are a couple of things that just are almost electric to me of uh, their relevance. You know, one of them is, you know, that there are sort of brilliant career professionals out there with great insights um, that even when the government of the United States is working semi-well, um, don't make it to the top. Um, don't influence things as they should have. Their their insights get go go amiss. 
But of course, in an administration like this one, you know, there's no chance that, you know, perspectives like this would make it to the top because the guy at the top doesn't read and isn't interested. Uh, and the rest of the administration is so dysfunctional that, you know, it, it wouldn't probably make it too far even up the chain. Uh, then, you know, you also have the situation of, you know, what you refer to as the American tragedy in Vietnam and getting bogged down there. We currently have an ongoing, you know, uh, war in Afghanistan that is longer than Vietnam, in which the generals continue to say, more troops, longer, we'll get this done eventually. Uh, we figured it out this time. And 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 we, we sort of haven't really seemed to actually learn the lessons of Vietnam that have come out of there. And, and, and similarly, we've got some other things brewing, including as I look at Syria, where America's sort of taken responsibility for a chunk of the country is actually shooting at and killing Russians across a river, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in defense of that property. You could see that turning into a quagmire like this. And I just wonder to what extent, Max, and then I'll turn to you, Rosa, you, you, you feel a kind of deja vu um, component to all of this, and, and, and these echoes from back then uh, strike you as really relevant now. Well, I wasn't, you know, when I was writing it, I was really focused on telling the historical story and, uh, uh, you know, unraveling Lansdale's involvement in the Philippines and then in Vietnam, but I think it does have some uh, relevance for the present day. Now, you know, obviously I started this in uh, 2013 where, you know, if anybody had told me that Donald Trump was going to become president, I would have thought that was a bad science fiction movie. Uh, so I certainly did not write it with Trump in mind, but it does occur to me that in some ways Donald Trump is is uh, kind of the anti-Ed Lansdale because Lansdale believed in engaging foreign leaders with trust, empathy, understanding, respect, listening rather than lecturing them, winning them over uh, through the power of his personality and persuasion, something he did very successfully with Ramon Magsaysay, the president of the Philippines, and then uh, No Dinh Diem, the president of South Vietnam. Uh, obviously, Trump operates in an entirely different manner in which he alienates allies, most recently the president of Mexico, who has now dropped plans uh, to visit Washington. He routinely badmouths entire uh, ethnic groups and, and indeed entire countries. Uh, and that makes it very hard to pursue the kind of soft power that Lansdale tried to use a, as his primary instrument in, in, in the Philippines and in South Vietnam. I mean, it wasn't easy in Lansdale's day either because obviously he had trouble getting through to policymakers like Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and people like General William S. Moreland who thought the answer in Vietnam was more and more firepower whereas Lansdale was convinced that we would never bomb the Viet Cong into oblivion, that the only way to win was to stand up a uh, durable, legitimate, and popular government in Saigon that could win the allegiance of its people. And that's, I think that's a relevant lesson today, and one that's also just as hard to convince policymakers today of that as it was in the 1960s. But we still need to think about that in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Libya, and so many others, where today we finally can kill insurgents, but we can't eliminate entire insurgencies, and our failure to achieve lasting political solutions undercuts uh, whatever tactical success that our soldiers have in those places, and that's, you know, I think that's a failure to learn uh, the kind of lessons that Lansdale was trying to teach in the 1960s, 
we didn't learn them then. We, we, we have not learned them now. So, yeah, I think there are some, uh, you know, disturbing parallels between uh, Lansdale situation and today, even though we're certainly not engaged in any conflict nearly as costly as, as the Vietnam War. Well, you know, Rosa, I know you've worked in the Pentagon and you've dealt with issues like this for some time. And, you know, as I sit and I listen to this, I keep thinking, you know, most of the people that have been leaders during my lifetime are people who were influenced to some degree by the Vietnam War. And they they would constantly talk about learning the lessons of Vietnam, whether it was Colin Powell and the Powell Doctrine or whether it's the lessons that David Petraeus drew and writing his PhD thesis on uh, at Princeton on the Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera. It seemed like this big formative experience. And yet, look at Afghanistan, look at Syria to some extent. Some of these lessons just don't seem learnable. I don't, you know, it's, I, w- I wonder if there is, there, you know, we're making a mistake in thinking um, that the issue is whether there's a lesson to be learned or whether we can actually achieve some of these things that we keep trying to do. And I suspect you've grappled with this. And I'm wondering what your thought is. It's it's a great question, and and it is one I grapple with. Although I I don't think I know the answer. I I think it remains a big question. You know, it is is it that we haven't learned the intellect the intellectual lessons that can be drawn, uh, or is it simply that we as a nation are not set up in a way that makes it possible for us to act on those lessons because our military is not set up in the right kind of way because our bureaucracy, our funding cycles, our our politics are not set up to allow us to act on those lessons. I don't know. I I mean, I think it's in Afghanistan and Iraq, it was a little bit of both, obviously, that I, I think that clearly after Vietnam, there was uh, a trend within the U.S. military, which, which, which did not include everybody, but, you know, to sort of say, we're never going to do that again. We don't need to learn those lessons because the major lesson of the Vietnam War was bad idea, you know, don't go fighting guerrilla armies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that very much, you know, animated the, the Powell Doctrine and to some extent the, the lesson some drew from U.S. success in the first Gulf War was see the moral of the story is, you know, only fight wars in the middle of the desert against uh, a whole bunch of Iraqi tanks. Um, forget all this counterinsurgency stuff. You know, so to some extent, people like Petraeus and, and others inside the military who were trying to get a greater focus on, on counterinsurgency lessons from Vietnam and elsewhere did have to fight some internal resistance. But, but I think that there was certainly a period of time, at least, in which they won. You know, they became that became the intellectually ascendant approach to war fighting for a, a brief period of time. It it didn't last very long, in part because it became immediately apparent that regardless of the level of intellectual commitment on the part of military leaders, that in every possible way, U.S. policy and U.S. institutions and U.S. politics are are set up to undermine any kind of longer term, subtle counterinsurgency approach. Uh, so where where does that leave us at the end of the day? I, I'm not quite sure. You know, does it leave us saying, well, we should keep trying to do this if the situation presents itself and it's never too late, and uh, we should continue to try to alter our institutions and so on, so we can do a better job? Or 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 should the lesson we draw be? We can't do this. We're bad at it. In fact, it turns out that nobody's very good at it, uh, or nobody's at least very good at it consistently and in a sustainable way. Um, and we just need to, you know, that there is no meaningful lesson because 
it's it's irrelevant what your intellectual takeaway is when you say, well, if only we had done X, Y, and Z. Uh, if the if if in fact we never ever ever will do X, Y, and Z because we're simply incapable of it, then it's not actually a lesson that we that we either should or can learn on some level. I, I don't know. I'd be curious to know, Max, your takeaway from that. Well, I'd, I would too, and I would you know, I th- in some ways, this is kind of. One of the big questions of national security policy for the United States, and you might break it down into kind of three categories of potential answers. There's the Barack Obama potential response to this, which is, we don't do any of this stuff very well. Let's just stay out of it. Let's not get involved in a lot of places because we're not going to learn these lessons. They're not learnable. It's not something we can do. And then there's the Donald Trump view of things, which is... um, and I'm overstating it because he probably doesn't have a fully formed view, but it's kind of like we can do whatever our generals say. If we put enough money into it, we'll figure out a way. Uh, And then I think there's a third point of view, which I might call the George H.W. Bush point of view, which is a little bit of this Powell doctrine, which is, well, if you define a goal quite narrowly and you give yourself all the tools you need to achieve that goal, we might be able to do that, but don't draw the mission too large because there is a point beyond which we will certainly fail. And I don't know whether you sort of buy into that structure, Max, or, or, or have a different view in response to Rose's question. I have kind of a different view, which is I don't think that we have the luxury of avoiding uh, politics. I don't think we have the luxury of avoiding nation building uh, because I think we pretty consistently see uh, that where we don't engage in those activities – our tactical military success tends to be pretty transitory. And, you know, obviously, whether it's in World War One, where we defeated the Germans and then left and had to come back 20 years later, uh, or more recently in places like Somalia, Haiti, uh, you know, Iraq after 2011, when, when we tend to leave, uh, things tend to fall apart. And I think we need to focus, and, you know, I think all the stuff that Rosa is saying about how difficult it is for the U.S. government to engage in, in nation building and in an effective political action abroad is all very accurate. And in fact, Ed Lansdale himself said, I despair of Americans ever alerting the simplicity of fighting a political war. And I think the, you know, there, there's no question that we tend to favor the technological and, and, and kinetic military action, which is what we are comfortable with, but it's, it's, it's never going to be sufficient. And, and the case for nation building, the case for political warfare is not that it's easy or that it has a stupendous track record, the case is that there's really no alternative unless you're simply willing to say, we don't mind, you know, huge portions of the world uh, going to going to hell. We don't mind like the greater Middle East uh, falling prey to anarchy, to extremist groups, to all the these other problems. I, 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 but I don't think, you know, unless you're like a Rand Paul isolationist, I don't think that's really a position you can take because, you know, we saw in 9-11 how even events in a, in a country as distant and, and seemingly insignificant as Afghanistan can come back to haunt us. And, and we certainly saw in Iraq and Syria what happened after we pulled out in 2011 with the rise of Islamic State and, and leading us to, to intervene back. And I think even a very minimal uh, read of U.S. national security interests of the kind that President Obama, for example, wanted to pursue, nevertheless had us undertaking drone strikes and special operations missions in many, many countries across the greater Middle East. And, you know, I don't think we can avoid that, but I think it's also insufficient. I mean, if, because if you just have 
uh, drone strikes and special operations, which you're really doing, you have a decapitation line of operations where you're trying to decapitate these insurgent groups, uh, but it's never going to achieve lasting effects. It's like mowing the lawn. Uh, be so unless you can achieve some kind of political effect on the ground where you can enable a local government to actually control its territory, uh, you're going to be doing these drone strikes and special operations raids in perpetuity, and, and you're, you're going to have to keep hoping uh, that you that that you that you're lucky all the time, and that the terrorists don't get lucky once. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's where we are. But I do think that there is some slight grounds for thinking that you know a a different approach can pay off. And I think we saw that in the case of Colombia recently, where this very long-running 50-year-old civil war, this insurgency involving FARC, has finally ended. And I think that was enabled by a variety of factors, including primarily, I think it was the rise of a great leader in Colombia, in, in Alvaro Uribe, who is the president who implemented uh, counterinsurgency doctrine in, in a successful way in Colombia. But we also helped with Plan Colombia with providing billions of dollars in aid, also providing advisors. I mean, that's that, to my mind, is is the Lansdale approach in the modern world an example of how that can work? And you know, you can also obviously you can point to a lot of failures, uh, but that's I think that's the model that we have to try to strive to to emulate. Rosa, is this a relevant question? I mean, you, you know, we, we we talk about Afghanistan. There's clearly Syria out there. But as we sort of get into sort of these broader struggles, do you think there's going to be a big temptation to simply change the subject? I think drones do that a little bit. But, you know, you say, well, let's, you know, we'll go after these guys with drones. We'll go after them with cyber. We'll go after them with intelligence. We'll go after them with a few special ops. And we're just not going to use these old conventional approaches anymore. And we're going to come up with a new playbook as groups come out of the woodwork like this. And so it's, this is a old school conversation. Is that, is that? <laughs> well, I don't know how old school it is. This used this, this is what used to be referred to as, as an unconventional approach. Right. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't see under the Trump administration, any appetite for the kind of sustained political work of counterinsurgency um, at all. Uh, I, I think that the Obama administration's appetite for that, which was never significant, waned very rapidly. Um, and and Trump is back in the land of uh, what can we do with, with, with raids and drones? And meanwhile, let's threaten North Korea with nuclear war. Um, um, so, you know, I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether you want to call that new or old or a little bit of both. But so I don't I don't you know, I think that in the near term, the discussion of whether we, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda engaged in a very different kind of effort on the ground in various places is probably moot because we won't. Um, that said, I, I, you know, I do think that the world will continue to throw up complicated and difficult situations and Donald Trump won't be president forever. And whoever's president next may be interested and willing to grapple with this set of challenges all over again. You know, obviously there's also a question that the alternatives are not, it's in a, you know, we shouldn't fall into the trap of, of framing the, the alternatives as, you know, either we have these sustained, complicated, expensive uh, counterinsurgency efforts that require lots and lots of, uh, 
U.S. personnel, both military and non-military, with linguistic and cultural expertise, and it costs a lot of money, and it takes a long time, and, you know, it potentially, we screw it up. Either that's the alternative, or uh, we can take this approach, the whack-a-mole drone strike and targeted raids approach. Um, there are plenty of other other ways to approach long-term challenges that relate both to violent extremism and to instability stemming from repressive governance and et cetera that, that don't involve you know, either of those. And, I, and I, I don't want us to frame it as those are the two alternatives. Um, you know, it may involve much longer term efforts on the civilian side. Um, but that, that, I mean, that's maybe a different conversation, though. Let me let me turn this subject to a slightly different component of this. You know, Lansdale was this kind of character that um, that that seems familiar if you if you read history and has been essential um, in 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 a lot of America's successes overseas, but also in the success of all sorts of countries that have been active around the world. And that is somebody on the ground, very smart, immersed in local um, uh, customs and politics and tactics and issues, um, the kind of sort of experience-hardened expert. And, you know, we currently, you know, in, 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 in this administration, I think six, seven of the most important countries in the Middle East don't have an ambassador. South Korea doesn't have an ambassador. So that's sort of the highest level regional expert that we will often have on the ground. We don't have that. Um, we don't have a president that pays much attention to his NSC. There's a lot of turmoil in his NSC. It's a lot of speculation that H.R. McMaster is going to leave. Um, we're not investing in a new generation of people to do this. And in terms of the intelligence community, there's been this kind of vilification of the intelligence community um, and, and, and attacks on them. And this strikes me as kind of, you know, poking our own eyes out. You know, it's, it's, it's just the surest way to be unprepared for the next big problem. Uh, and, I, you know, I, in looking at this book, took that away as one of the messages. But I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Max. Oh, I basically agree with that. I, I mean, I think there there is one positive thing that's happening right now in the military, which is that the army is creating something called these SFABs, these Security Force Assistance Brigades, which are the first dedicated military organizations designed to support and, and train and produce uh, military advisors who traditionally have been the bastard stepchildren in the United States military. But that's an incredibly valuable specialty. Uh, because we're really going to deal with all of these terrorist threats around the world, uh, primarily with advisors, not with American combat troops. And so now the Army, at least, is recognizing the importance of these advisors. But uh, while we may have better military advisors, we still have a need for political advisors, which is basically what, what Ed Lansdale was. He was a leadership whisperer. He was somebody who cultivated people like Ramon Magsaysay, the president of the Philippines, or No Dinh Diem, the president of South Vietnam. And we don't really have people like that today. Uh, it's a job that, that theoretically could be done by the State Department, but they don't really see that as being uh, their core capacity. And as you alluded to, the State Department is now being devastated. You're losing an entire generation of Foreign Service officers because of this mismanagement of Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump. 
it's it's a very sad situation. I mean, the State Department did not have sufficient capacity to begin with, and now whatever capacity they had is, is being cut. Morale is going through the floor. Uh, they just don't have the capacity to step up. And so basically, if you're looking around for political advisors who I think are actually, uh, a, that's a specialty we need. I mean, we kind of need an army of Ed Lansdales to go around the world and work uh, with friendly states to buttress their capabilities and to gently steer them in the right direction. That's, but that's a capacity that's MIA within the U.S. government, and we're, and we're not acquiring it uh, anytime soon. And so, you know, that's so when we confront these issues, we we tend to view them through this kind of very narrow kinetic military prism of let's go kill some bad guys, even though time and again we've seen that just killing a few bad guys doesn't really make the fundamental threat go away. Rosa, you know, it, it strikes me it's a, it's a little similar to uh, again. I you know I tend to go to the sort of foreign policy canon for most of my references. It, it strikes me as similar to a recent episode of the Ellen DeGeneres show, um, <laughs> on which she had Bill Gates, and and she started asking Bill Gates, famed billionaire, what the price of various groceries were, and Gates was like, I don't know, you know, and he just he just was completely out of touch. And, you know, he had managed, you know, I mean, he doesn't run his company every day anymore, but he had ran, you know, managed to throughout his life to sell a bunch of products to people until he got to the point where he was no longer in touch with them. Um, and, and this happens in a lot of companies, they sort of lose touch with the basic um, consumers. And it happens also with powerful nations who sort of think they're entitled to their power, and they don't have to work the issues on the ground. And, and and there's this kind of complacency, this sort of fat, happy, and rich country complacency that sort of gets to the point where you're sort of like Donald Trump thinks, well, of course, we're the United States. You know, I was born rich. I'm going to be rich my whole life. I don't have to worry about this stuff. I don't have to do the work of having global influence. It will come to me because of who I am. And it 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 seems to me that we're running the risk by gutting out all these things of of just not even being able to do the work. I think you're absolutely right, David. Uh, I think that we have, uh, in all kinds of ways, despite Trump's pledge to, you know, add lots more money to the military budget, uh, that across the executive branch that we've really hollowed out our, our capability to engage in exactly this kind of hard, necessary work uh, on this and, and, and zillions of other fronts. You know, whether you want to look at something like U.S. rule of law assistance or democracy-related assistance uh, uh, or, or the important role that uh, U.S. Broadca the broadcasting uh, organizations and Voice of America and other media entities have played historically that we in many ways have, and, and this began before Trump, obviously, uh, it's gotten worse under Trump, but it, it, it's a trend that it goes back several decades. We have really reduced our own capacity to be effective uh, outside of the United States. Um, I, I'm, I'm less sanguine than, uh, than Max is that this new uh, Army Security Forces Assistance Brigade uh, is going to be a game changer in any way. Uh, in some ways, I worry, on the contrary, that it's kind of a sign of our, our weakening national commitment to doing that rather than a sign of a strengthening national commitment in the sense that we're, we're you know, this is, this is what, in theory, special forces do. 
but it's really, really expensive and time consuming to create special forces. So this becomes a way to say, well, maybe we can kind of do it quickly and cheaply uh, with conventional troops. And, and my worry is that, you know, we weren't even all that good at doing it with special forces, that this may just be, be a even less good way to get at those skills uh, than we already had. Um, Max, as you've gone out there, we just have a couple minutes left here, but as you've been out there on the book tour, one of the things that's always interesting to me in a book tour is you write the book and then you go out and you talk to a bunch of people. Um, and the questions sometimes make you think, well, maybe I should have focused more on this, or this is really what's striking the resonant chord. And I'm just wondering, what are people responding to in this, in this book? I mean, the response has been great, but I'm just wondering, because it's a different era, um, and particularly interested in why is this relevant to a millennial? You know, why, why, why is the rising generation of leaders going to find this relevant? Well, maybe it's just the nature of the audiences that I talk to, but they do seem interested. And I think there is a desire to learn lessons from Lansdale's experience of the kind that we've just been uh, describing. I mean, one of the funny, actually one of the funniest experiences I've had on uh, on book tour is, is maybe not such an epic insight, but it's it was amusing anyway, because, you know, I always talk about uh, Ed Lansdale's adulterous affair uh, with Pat Kelly and these letters that I uncover that trace their relationship. And uh, usually uh, this is uh, the part of the talk, which is uh, one of the one of the highlights for an audience, one of the things that's most fascinating and unusual. Uh, and I, you know, I speak very sympathetically about the Lansdale, uh, Pat Kelly relationship, which I thought was a very romantic and touching one, even if it was also adulterous. Um, but uh, it was kind of amusing to me to to talk about this in front of military audiences at places like the Army War College and Fort Bragg and so forth, and especially to to younger officers, uh, because you can just feel uh, the the disapproval radiate from their ranks, and they sit there very coldly and and don't don't react and and don't laugh at, at some of the humor or so forth, uh, because of course, you know what Lansdale is doing is, is something they could be court-martialed for doing. This is a violation of the Uniform Code of of military justice. So I was just this was something. I mean, it's again not a not not an earth-shattering insight, but it was just amusing to me to to see how parts of the talk are received differently based on by different audiences and especially whether it's civilian or or military. Rose, it only makes me think you wonder if the commander in chief has any idea of the rules of the uniform code of military justice. I think it's a pretty safe bet that the answer to that is no. <laughs> it would just it would just be it would it would be it would be you know a great day to just sort of sit there and walk him through some of those points. Well, well look, I think this look, but, but he makes up for it. He makes up for it with his inspirational courage because you know yeah. he just said that uh, if he came across a school shooting, he would run inside even without a weapon. So I think oh, that's right. that's that's the kind of courage that should inspire our our troops and law enforcement personnel. I personally would like to see Donald Trump take the citizenship exam required of would be <laughs> new U.S. citizens. So I'm fairly certain yeah. he wouldn't do too well on that one either. Yeah, that would it, be no, more, it maybe seems more that interesting they're... than the mental acuity exam that he took. <laughs> no, no. I think I think that's true. I think there are very few tests that Donald Trump could pass, except for perhaps some paternity tests, um, <laughs> which we, you know, probably will never see the results of. 
you wonder whatever happened to Stormy Daniels. She was going to come public with her story. But, you know, you sort of, she's been silent. You sort of wonder if another deal has been cut. Um, There's also the Playboy Plainweight, who, who also had her story out. Yeah, well, hmm. exactly. Yeah. But yet somehow the, the volume has been turned down on all those things. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch all of this, but it's very useful periodically to stop, take a look at history, get a different perspective on this. Um, the Road Not Taken is a terrific, terrific book. Uh, it is exactly the kind of book that every single one of the deep state radio nerds should be reading um, and buying for their family and friends. And so we you know, commend it to you. We thank you, Max. Congratulate you on the success of the book. Thank you, Rosa. We'll see everybody again next week for two more exciting episodes. And I hope at that point I will be over the bubonic plague because it's, <laughs> you know. Thanks David. Yeah, thanks yeah, for it's, me, David. You know, <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, right. And if I'm not, have a nice time next week. Thanks for not making me come into the studio to, to have David breathe on me. That was that was thoughtful <laughs> yeah. of you. That's Man, just people... the kind of small gesture we make towards our guests. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I'll be in that studio next week, and uh, see you guys then. Thank you very, very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.